Welcome back to the Mavericks and Misfits podcast. Welcome to all of you who are tuning in for the very first time. My name is Jeff Lyle, and you are uh, listening to a podcast that is um, pretty meat and potatoes. Uh, what you see is, or what you hear is what you get. It is, um, you know, my delight to kind of unpack things from the word to try to offer, you know, 30 minutes of discussion, although it's kind of one way unless you email me, but uh, at least 30 minutes of dialogue, monologue. Uh, that is uh, centered around different things in the kingdom of God, sometimes controversial, sometimes thought-provoking, sometimes boring. Um, And most of the time, it at least leaves you with an opportunity to consider your own walk with the Lord. That's one of the things I just like doing. I like to be able to speak the things of God um, in a way that has the hearer to consider his or her own journey with Jesus and provide room and opportunity for change and growth or affirmation, whatever the Lord wants to to pour in. He just moves, man. When we when we talk about Him, when we honor Him, when we make Him central in our thinking and our words and our behaviors and our desires, when we get Jesus uh, enthroned on top of us, and we just are looking up at Him and staring metaphorically here, staring into Him. And just finding everything in our desire to know him, to glorify him, to bring pleasure to his heart, and to be ready for when he returns. That's what makes life real, man. Um, You know, there's a massive difference between the experience, the Christian experience of one who is trying his or her um, deepest, hardest, longest to fall in love with the Son of God. There's a big difference between that and the casual church attender that doesn't mind the songs, hopes they get done quickly, and will endure a little bit of a sermon as long as it doesn't touch on their sins. You're like that's not that's not what God has got you in the kingdom for. He wants you to fall in love with Jesus, and that is less about some emotional, sentimental thing, and it's more about just like ah, the one who got me, the one who saved me. The one who shepherds me, the one who told me to lean hard into him and he'd provide and take care and make me wise and give me joy, bring me peace, empower me to walk and do great exploits for his name. Um, That's kind of what I want to motivate you towards. I mean, you don't need any motivation to be a decent church member. (laughs) You can do that in your sleep. Most people do, if I can risk that, that critique, uh, you know, our churches are just filled with, you know, status quo church members and that's every church everywhere. And I, I'm believing for better things as we approach the end of the age. I think that that trend is going to be, be changed. I think that the more that Christianity begins to cost professing Christians, the more we're going to find out who is an actual Christian versus who is just a Christian in lip service. And as the church is purified through challenges and, um, you know, even persecution, uh, we're going to see the bride of Christ come forth in beauty and fire and radiance and power and love. And uh, that's the kind of person that you want to be in the body of Christ. You're sick of status quo. I'm more sick of the potential for status quo in my own heart than I am for anybody else's. So I'm not a sideline critic just pointing fingers at all the Christians saying, yeah, get your act together. I like always look into my own, my own walk and just am asking the Lord on a regular basis, Jesus, you died for more than what I'm currently seeing in my life. Help me. 
That's every day. I don't know that I pray that every day, but that is what I live with every day. He died and rose and covenanted with us for so much more than any of us are seeing in our lives that we ought to live with a holy groan inside saying he's worthy of more. He's worthy of so much more in my life and through my life and from my life. So help us, Lord. Um, you know, this is an interesting, uh, we're in the month of December. And so I, I didn't really see this early on in my Christian life, maybe because I wasn't, there wasn't social media. Maybe it was there and I'm just more aware of it, but like people like to fight over Christmas. <laughs> is that, that is so ironic to me. Christians fighting over Christmas and it's, it's just mind numbing. It's like, that's just where the American church is. We, we don't know how to worship, submit, and humble ourselves, but we're good at fighting with each other. And so what do we do? Every year in December, you know, lights go up, trees go up, songs hit the airwaves, gifts are bought and exchanged, decorations, and, um, you know, a lot of stuff in our church services themed around the incarnation of Jesus. And some people love that, and some people just, like, get fed up. They're over it. They're like, this is a pagan holiday that has nothing to do with the incarnation. The date is wrong. You're bringing trees into your house and that violates some old Testament scriptures. And you, you've got your lights hung up and you're pagan and idolaters and you're, it's commercialized and you're celebrating it. And it's, you know, Oh my word. And then the other Christians are like, ah, you're a legalist. You're just a bitter old soul. You're angry and narrow and you need to get with. And it's like, okay. And the devil's just sitting on the corner with 20 demons eating popcorn, watching us come to fisticuffs with each other. It's just kind of stupid. So let me give a disclaimer. You're free not to celebrate Christmas. I won't judge you for it. I celebrate it. Our tree went up in, uh, the last week of October this year. We got lights. We got decorations, excuse me, not the last week of October. Um, it was the first or second week of November, something like that. It, it went up before December. I can tell you that. Um, and we got stockings and we got some gifts under the tree and Amy's been playing Christmas songs in you know, her SUV for a month. And, uh, we love it. We, we love Christmas time. And I understand that a lot of people's personal convictions, uh, do not allow them to enjoy it whatsoever. And they have like seriously righteous convictions. They're, they're righteously convicted in their own heart and their own mind that to celebrate Christian uh, Christmas is to come into agreement with demonic, demonic paganism and they get mad and you'll find them on Facebook. They post about it and they shame and tell the rest of us that we're wicked. And I just want to say you're free. You're completely free to follow the Holy spirit. If that is your conviction, not to celebrate Christmas, you're completely free to do that. But here's what I would just say to you. Um, you are not free to judge. You just need to read Romans 14 and Romans 15. And you'll find out real quick that when it talks about calendar days, you, we don't, we don't judge people on calendar days. We don't judge people on things that are not specified in scripture. And I can pretty much, I've been studying and working through the word long enough. I can pretty much make a case for anything I wanted to. So I could pick five verses from this book, three verses from this book, one, one half verse from this book. And I could make a case for just about anything I wanted to make a case for. But that's not the way we treat scripture. And the Bible is 100% silent, 100% silent 
on the celebration in the 21st century of the birth of Jesus Christ around December 25th. We don't know the date of his birth. And here's the thing. If you're celebrating him every day of the year, then you won't have a problem celebrating him around December 25th. But if your, your, your spirit convicts you that it's pagan, okay, but you are not authorized and you're certainly not dispatched from God to tell all the other Christians in their worship of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lord, that they are sinning against God. And so when somebody does accuse you of that, listen, for you that do celebrate, you're not to retort. You just let them be where they are. Like if one side of the aisle will just shut up and (laughs) then there won't be an argument. But my, oh my, tis the season to fight with Christians. La, 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 la. That's just kind of what goes on. And I think it breaks the heart of God. I think that the Lord does allow us to develop our own personal convictions about things that are not specified in scripture, but he, he is very, very focused on what do we do with those convictions? Are they helping us in our walk with the Lord or do we use them as a billy club to smash the other people? So I I usually say this about once a year because, you know, somebody needs to say something and. My thing is this, if it helps you not, if it helps your walk with God to not celebrate Christmas, by all means, don't celebrate it, but it will not help your walk with God to get mad and bitter with the majority of Christians who do celebrate it. So if, if we're all wrong, you just gonna have to let us be wrong, but don't let it get you bitter. You're free not to be bitter. Let the Lord straighten it out. And if we never get straightened out the way you see things need to be straightened out, then when we get to glory, if it turns out you're right, then in one way or another, we'll give an answer for it. And I can live with that risk. I can absolutely live with that risk. I hope that you that don't celebrate it, don't, don't get to glory and the Lord say, Hey, that's just when on earth they celebrated me. Why were you so mad about it? And so there's some humbling, I think, that we all need to go into. So along those lines, let me talk to you about, you know, Jesus being the center of our Christmas joy. Like one of the one of the challenges for pastors, preachers, teachers, all of that is around Christmas. It's like, man, we have done those seven passages of Scripture that are Christmas themed over and over and over and over again. Um, And so, you know, a lot of churches try to come up with something new and innovative and novel and something cool. I don't. I'm just like, hey, let's go back to those same passages of Scripture and let's, you know, let's walk through and just maybe get some very present, um, I don't know, revelation or some insights or just even some some affirmation about who he is in our spirit. Um, So let me give you the two verses from Isaiah 9 that a lot of you can quote from memory. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government, here we go, we're getting prophetic here. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh, I love those verses. 
Love them so much, I'm going to read them again. Come on, stay with me here. It's Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Man, I love those verses. And here's what we don't realize. Isaiah was prophesying and prophesying over what we know is the first advent and the second advent of Jesus Christ, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah didn't know there would be two um, conceptions that he was addressing there concerning Israel's Messiah. We have the benefit of looking back and know that some of what he prophesied was not fulfilled in the first coming. And so when I look at this Christmas prophecy from Isaiah chapter number nine, I'm not only saying, yes, hallelujah, Christ has come. God became man. He was born as a baby. He entered into the human experience to be our kinsman redeemer. He was tempted in all points like every other human, yet he, Jesus, never sinned. And so therefore he was the perfect sacrificial substitutionary lamb of God whose blood was spilled for the sins of mankind. He was born. He he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended back to the throne. Hallelujah. I love that. I love it. I mean, I just love it. It, it doesn't get better than the gospel. I love that. But the gospel isn't simply what Isaiah was talking about in the birth of the Messiah. Most of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 hasn't happened yet. Dun, dun, dun. That's right. Most of that famous Christmas time passage hasn't happened yet. And so I just want to talk about it a little bit. I mean, let, let me just start out by saying something why I love Christmas, because it, it fixates on the moment where God became a man. I love that. God became a man. And more specifically, God became a baby in the womb and then an infant out of the womb and then a toddler and then a primary aged child, then an adolescent, then a man and then a king. I love it. I love it. I love it. But friends, this passage of scripture points you to look ahead. Because the first coming is always connected to the second coming. And Isaiah didn't know there would be at least a 2,000 year gap between those two monumental events of the incarnation and the um, revelation of Jesus and who he is. So when it tells us in Isaiah 9 6, a child is born, a baby. To be loved. That's kind of the sentiment of Christmas. Baby Jesus. We love it. The baby crying in the mangers, the angels, the shepherds. I love that. The wise men, the magi came from the east, and then you've got the star of Bethlehem, and you've got all of the events, Mary and Joseph, and no room at the end. It's not a Hallmark card, man. It's the Bible. It's the gospel. I love it. 
But it tends, when we think of Jesus primarily as this baby to be loved, it tends to speak of the sentiment of Christmas. Nothing wrong with that unless you stop there. Because the next part of verse 6 says, not only a child is born, but a son is given. And that son is the firstborn son of God. He is the one who is the heir of all things. He's a savior and a king to reign and to rule. So beyond the sentiment of Christmas, we have to press into the spirit of Christmas. And the spirit of Christmas is Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit wants you to know it wasn't just a sweet little cute little baby, but it was the very son of God. God gave his firstborn son to redeem sinners. And it's not simply to save, but to rule, as we'll see in the rest of verse 6 and 7. So when I think about Christmas, I'm trying my very best to cut through all the tinsel and all the lights, to cut through all of the decor. I love all that stuff. Again, I've already said that. I, I like the songs. I like the sentiment. But I don't want to stop there. I don't want to get tangled in the tinsel. <laughs> I, I want to press through that and I want to recognize the first coming was not so we'd just be warm and tender and sweet, but that so we remember it was the inauguration of the full prophetic destiny of God the Son. And what is that full prophetic destiny? It's what God covenanted with the Son about, which is to reign and to rule, to receive a bride, to create his own people, to call out those whom he would save. So a son had to be given. God gave his only begotten son to planet earth, not to people that were worthy, not to people that were beautiful and pristine and impeccably clean. No, he gave his son to redeem those who were the enemies of God. And then I love the names that are listed in Isaiah six and goes down and talks a little bit about it, uh, unpacks it a little more in Isaiah nine, seven, so nine, six his name will be Wonderful Counselor. His name will be Mighty God. His name will be Everlasting Father. Hold on. I thought he was a son, Jeff. Why is it saying he's a father? Yes. Yes. The son is the same as the father in essence and identity. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. All these phrases that were true about the baby but were only manifested as he became a man, and some of them still haven't been fully seen. They're just declared. So when we talk about the wonderful counselor, that's Jesus. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He knows the mind of God. He knows the heart of man. The wonderful counselor knows the schemes of Satan. Your wonderful counselor knows the dangers of your flesh, the mysteries of life. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He knows God's principles for victory. He also knows God's pinpoint pathway for you in your life. Why? He's the wonderful counselor who will guide you along that path. He knows all the whys and the hows and the wheres and the whens. We don't, we don't know that stuff. We have to have that stuff revealed to us. By who? By the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor knows right now in your life when it's best to use you, when it's best to put you on pause. The wonderful counselor knows how to warn you. He knows how to move you, knows when to please you and when to uh, kind of draw it out a little bit. He, the wonderful counselor knows your mind and your heart, your soul and your spirit. So he knows how to get through to you. 
He also knows your breaking point. He's wise. He's wondrous. And this wonderful counselor knows exactly what he's doing in your life today. That's Jesus. Who? He as God. He is our counselor. He's always given us truth. The counselor always tells you the truth. This one does. And as far as being our wonderful or wondrous counselor, he always gives that truth in the perfect manner of love. He's also mighty God. He's not just wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. This is talking about Jesus. Think about it. The baby was God in her womb, in Mary's womb. God Almighty grew and gestated over 40 weeks in the womb of a virgin named Mary. God Almighty, at 12 years old, human time, instructed the Hebrew scribes in the temple and the lawyers. Is, is God Almighty, is the Son well-pleased God the Father? God Almighty, in a human voice, preached like nobody before or since. We never heard words like this man, they said about Jesus. God Almighty, as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as Jesus Christ, he fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he restored and delivered the demon-possessed, he walked on waves, he stilled the sea. God Almighty, that's Jesus. He raised the dead. God Almighty welcomed the children and took them into his lap, according to the scriptures. God Almighty, Jesus Christ, rebuked the hypocrites, called out the disciples, said, come and follow me. God Almighty enlightened those who were ignorant and unlearned. He remembered those who were forgotten and shoved aside. He forgave the immoral. God Almighty carried a cross on his bloodied back. God Almighty submitted to death. God Almighty, Jesus Christ, paid the price. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and God Almighty is coming again. Listen, when Jesus arrives on earth in the second coming, his name will be vindicated as God Almighty. He's also the everlasting Father, according to Isaiah 9, 6. That's a hard one. People like want us to hedge on this. Let, let me just be bold. Hold on, I'm going to take a sip of water. In our generation, people want us to dilute this exclusive dogmatic statement. Jesus Christ is God and there is no other. If you don't believe that, then your Christianity is called into question. There are not many ways to God because Jesus is God. And everybody else that founded a religion upon their teachings or upon their character or upon their name, those are not gods. Jesus Christ is the only God. He is the everlasting Father. Remember in John 14 when, when, when Jesus asked Philip, Jesus, the one who has seen, and Jesus told this to Philip, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Why are you saying, show us the Father? Philip had asked Jesus, show us the Father and we'll believe. And Jesus like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 10 and verse 30 said, I and the Father are one. John 5, he said, you have to honor the Son even as you honor the Father. He that will not honor the Son does not honor the Father that has sent him. <laughs> Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and, and he said, here's the mystery of godliness. God manifested himself in the flesh. And then Paul would say to Titus 
that he said, our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys, Jesus is the everlasting Father. When, when, when people say, do you believe in God? That's such an easy question to answer. Most people believe in a God. But you have to tell people, my God, his name's Jesus. Jesus is my God. And that'll start some conversations in the break room at work. And, you know, people want us to compromise. Well, there's, we all believe in the same God. Really? Is your God named Jesus Christ? My God's name is Jesus Christ. God is a word that lacks definition depending on the context in which it's used. <clears throat> and so we have to get to the place where we're just like not taking anything for granted anymore. Oh, good. I'm glad you believe in God. Is his name Jesus? Well, no, my God is Allah. Oh, well, you don't believe in God. Well, no, I'm telling you, Allah means God in Arabic. That's fine. But that my God's name is Jesus Christ. And so if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as God, then you and I don't believe in the same God. We, we just get in order to be, you know, we, we just want everybody to be agreeable. Well, there's some conflicts that you have to engage in. And that's one of the most important ones. Who is God? He's the everlasting father. What's his name? Jesus. His name is Jesus. He's the prince of peace. Man, I love that. Wherever Christ is enthroned, the result's going to be peace. And so we know these phrases, man. A lot of people looking for peace right now. And they're trying to find it. You know, what Jesus says, you know, their side dish. And I'm like, no, he's got to be central in my life for me to experience peace, subjective peace and objective peace. Objective peace is that I have peace with God through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Subjective peace is that I feel the assurance of that in my spirit, my soul and my emotions. He is the prince of peace wherever he's enthroned. Prince is a royal statement. It's, it speaks of his right to sit on a throne. Wherever Christ is enthroned, the result is going to be peace. But here's the part I think that we, we need to connect to Christmas. Because these are the parts that we haven't seen come to pass yet. Like Jesus has already come. He was born of a virgin. He was raised as a baby. All the stages of life I mentioned that he went through earlier. He died, rose, and ascended back to heaven. But let me just ask you, has Isaiah 9 been fulfilled yet? Some people say, yeah, he came. It's the incarnation. No, there's more to it. And this is the part where Isaiah didn't see a distinction between the first coming and the second coming. He couldn't have. Nobody did. They wrote about it, and we can look back and find it in Scripture, but they didn't know that their Messiah to them was going to come, establish his, his rulership. They didn't even know he'd be God. They just thought he would be the anointed and the appointed one from God. They didn't know that God himself had to come to be the Messiah. He couldn't just send a Messiah. He had to be the Messiah. And so that's where you start getting to the royalty and the rulership of Christmas. Because it says in Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Of the increase of the government of Messiah, there will be no end. Now, I'm just going to ask you something. And by the way, a lot of people spiritualize these and say, oh, no, he is ruling and reigning. And that's all there is to it. It's just a spiritual kind of reference. It doesn't have to be literal. No, it's got to be both. He is ruling and reigning. He's the sovereign God. He sits on the throne in heaven, does whatever he pleases, according to the psalmist. So we know that's true, but that's not all that there is because the covenants, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David promised a ruler on a throne from the lineage of David. And that can't happen in just a spiritual way. 
because that's not what the promise was. The Abrahamic covenant wasn't just spiritualized. (laughs) Those are promises that involve descendants, rulers, lands, and a throne. And so we're told that the increase of the government of Messiah will be endless. It will be everlasting. Well, friends, we have not seen him rule on earth. The first time he came to rule on earth, they rejected him. They crucified. He died and rose again, and he's ruling in heaven, but he's going to rule on earth. And it says of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. Do you see the peace of Jesus increasing to no end on planet earth? No, we, we see it in a remnant. We see it in the redeemed. We see it from the church, but we don't see global peace from Christ ruling the planet like it was prophesied that Messiah will. And he rules with perfection. It says he will, he's the perfect king because it says upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, there'll be no end. The throne of David. What like This is Isaiah writing as a Hebrew to Hebrews. Everybody knew the throne of David was a literal place of rulership on the earth from Jerusalem. And Messiah was prophesied more more than here. You can read Micah 4, 1 through 7. I don't have time to read those, but read the opening verses of the book of Micah, chapter 4. And and here we have in Isaiah 9, 7, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. Like that's got to mean something. And just because it's not happening yet in the physical doesn't mean we can just dilute it, water it down to where it's a, it's a non-binding spiritual floating up in the clouds kind of an idea that has no bearing on earth. That is poor, what we call exegesis of the text. It means you're over-spiritualizing something that God meant literally. And it says that he's going to rule with perfect wisdom. He's going to order it and establish that kingdom with judgment and righteousness And it says, from now until ever, forever. Do you see the justice and righteousness of Jesus Christ ruling on the planet? Do you see that? No, you don't see that. Do you see righteousness being established on the earth right now? No, you don't see that. It's not established. It might be prophesied, decreed, and fixed in the heavens, but it hasn't manifested on the earth. And these promises can't come true until they manifest. And so it should bait you. Christmas is, this is all Christmas, man. This is Isaiah 9. It's like, oh, the first coming is unto the second coming. Don't sentimentalize the first coming, baby Jesus, Without making the, the, the full giving of yourself to saying, oh, baby, Jesus is now the king of the cosmos who promised to come and rule on earth. And if you ever waver, um, just remember that the last of Isaiah 9, 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, will accomplish this. So the zeal of the one who paid the price is going to make sure that the fruit of that payment is fully secured, fully secured. This is just unbelievable to me that we can go into Christmas and fight about it. Stop that. Just quit it. Okay. Enough said. But, but the other, the other sad part to me is like we go into Christmas and we just sentimentalize it. And we, we just divorce Christmas from the fact that, oh man, it's connected to the rulership. The first coming is connected to the second coming. Go there. Like go all the way there. The birth, born of a virgin, prophesied, fulfilled. 
the one who was pierced for transgressions. Hey, we did that. He didn't die for us only. He died because of us. That was fulfilled. On the third day, rose again. He promised it. He did it. He told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you. Where I am, you're going to be also. That's promised. He's going to do it. And it's promised all throughout Old and even uh, unpacked in the New Testament that he's going to rule. Read the book of Revelation. He comes on a white horse, a new name, his robe dipped in blood. What does that mean? He's coming to make war. He's coming to fight and take what belongs to him that he purchased. Hallelujah. The name of Jesus Christ will be vindicated on planet Earth. He's been waiting 2,000 years for the world to bow to him and say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been waiting 2,000 years. It's going to happen. Hallelujah. And he's going to govern the world. The kingdoms of men will become the kingdom of God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That has not happened yet. It has to happen. That has to mean something. It, it's going to happen on earth. In the, 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 the apocalypse, the book of Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ back to the planet to establish what was covenanted with him. He's going to rule. And in the meantime, yes, he is all of the things that we have talked about. He's all of these things and so much more that we don't have time to talk about. This is Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, of his increase of his government. There'll be no end of the increase of his peace. There'll be no end. He's going to sit upon the throne of David in Jerusalem, Jerusalem and establish his kingdom. He's going to order it. He's going to establish it with righteousness and justice forever. And, and for those that wonder, don't forget the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is no small thing to the Son of God. This is what he came, lived, died, rose, and ascended for. And he will come back, and he'll finish what he began. Merry Christmas, everybody. That's some little, nice little tinsel thoughts. So much more than cookies on a plate and milk for St. Nick. All that stuff. Listen, do whatever you want to do with Christmas in the American version of it. I, I literally don't care. I just hope that whether you celebrate it the way Americans celebrate it or you choose not to, I just hope, man, that whatever it results in is the joy of the Lord in your heart and a closeness to Christ and a love for others. That is what the, um, the message of the gospel is. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and of others as you love yourself, okay? We'll talk to you next Tuesday. God bless. Thanks for tuning in to Mavericks and Misfits. Have you picked up a copy of Jeff's book, Figuring It Out As I Go? His life story of abandonment as a child, an embrace of the occult and addiction as a teenager, and a nearly deadly battle with depression and rage as a young adult serves as an intense backdrop to Jeff's supernatural conversion at the age of 24. From there, Jeff writes of powerful seasons of deliverance, healing, and breakthrough, which were followed by tragedy, betrayal, and deep challenges, which only God could turn around. If you want to hear a powerful account of the triumph of God's grace and Jeff's surprising journey into the mysteries of the Holy Spirit, pick up a copy of Figuring It Out As I Go at jefflyle.com or wherever else you buy books. You can also download a copy of Jeff narrating Figuring Out As I Go on audible.com.